I'm going to let Jesus introduce our subject for this morning. So I want you to listen to Jesus in the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 8, verse 31, as we prepare to come into our text in Galatians. First, hear the words of our Lord. John 8, verse 31. Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There's one overarching question for us to consider this morning, and it's this. Are you free? Are you free? Our text this morning as we hear from the living God in His Word is Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. Paul knows precisely what it is the Galatians need to keep in focus. Last week we covered verses 6 to 12. I didn't have it reread this week, but in verse 12, Paul has just leveled these agitators, these teachers from Jerusalem who've come, who've sought to enslave the Galatians once again, he says. And he speaks of them in the harshest of terms in verse 12 for one key reason, stated now in verse 13, the opening of our text for today. For you were called to freedom. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Freedom. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Which sounds not just a little like Galatians 5 verse 1, right? The first verse that was read today. For freedom Christ has set us free. So whether you're here now for... You know, I don't even know what number this is, the 26th sermon in Galatians or whatever it is, or this is your first time coming to Galatians, you can't miss on even a cursory reading of this book. Paul believes with everything he has that the Galatians were free. And it's because of their freedom that Paul can turn to the commands of Galatians chapter 5 and 6, which is where we are now, and it's not slowing down towards the end here. But to start with, I'm asking this question. Are you free? Now, I have three questions to get at that one question. 
if that makes sense. You can't answer the question, are you free, until you can understand the answer to three preliminary questions first. And the first two of them are going to be quick and their review based on our work in Galatians thus far. And then the third one is meant to direct us into the text for this morning. So here's question number one. Are you free? Here's question number one. Free from what? Free from what? <laughs> what were the Galatians free from? What are you from? Free from, if you are free. Now the answer is implicitly there in our text, but we've, we've already seen it much in Galatians explicitly. So let me back up a couple places and show you. Here's chapter 3, verse 22. But the scripture, Paul writes, imprisoned everything under sin. Here's the next verse, 23 of chapter 3. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Here's chapter 4, verse 3. We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Here's chapter 4, verse 8. When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Some of the specific details of those exegetically are tricky, but we've covered them in the big picture. It's clear. What you're free from is moral and spiritual bondage, slavery to sin. Or to put it simply, as the Bible does, you're free from yourselves. You're free from yourselves. You're no longer enslaved to what the Bible calls the flesh, the fallen self, the self turned in upon itself. Allusion to Luther there. <laughs> That's what the Galatians have been freed from, Paul argues. So then here's question number two. Freed how? Freed how? And once again, Paul's already said it in Galatians. We're freed by Jesus. Christ has set us free, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1. How does he do that? by making the cross plus the Spirit realities in our lives. I've said it almost every Sunday since the start. This is what Paul argues he has done in the Galatians' lives. The cross plus the Spirit. Here's chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Here's chapter 3, verse 4. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Here's chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The cross. So that in Christ Jesus we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Chapter 4, 
verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. It's the cross plus the Spirit. Freed from what? Freed from ourselves as slaves to sin, slaves to the flesh. Freed how? By the cross of the Son of God and the outpouring of His Spirit into our lives, i.e. grace cross plus the Spirit. That's all review. So then here's the third question. The third question that we've already touched on several times but moves us directly into our text this morning. Freed why? Or if you prefer, freed for what? To what end? What are you freed for, Christian? Because here you run into the reality that biblical freedom isn't what the world means by freedom. It's not focused on you and your rights and your liberties and your being able to do whatever you want, whether politically or economically or in any other category where we long for freedom as the world views it. But here's what Paul says. Christian, you're freed to keep the law. <laughs> you're freed to fulfill the law, Paul says. Do you believe that? The whole law, he says. The whole law. Law. <laughs> and you do that, according to these verses, which we have a lot to explain, you do that by serving one another through love. You are free to love. You are free to love. Christian, you are free to love in a way the world knows nothing about. Through love, serving one another, and in doing so, to fulfill the law of God. That's just the language Paul uses. It's amazing. Listen to verses 13 and 14 again. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For, here's the reason why. Here's the reason why that's what freedom is for. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a quote from the law itself, right? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. We're not going to go there now, 
But that is the most frequently quoted verse from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, commonly called the law. The most frequently quoted verse in the New Testament, Leviticus 19, verse 18. So maybe after we finish Galatians, we just ought to go to Leviticus, huh? You think? Show of hands for that? No. Okay. No one keen? An expositional series in Leviticus? Probably not. Maybe we should. You who are free, you who are free, you through love serve one another, and this is true, Paul says, you fulfill the whole law. You, Christian. Now, I, we, what Paul means is what we have to talk about. But can you even begin to feel the significance of a statement like that in light of what we've been studying in Galatians? Now I make your heart beat a little faster. You hear this kind of language. What does Paul mean? Now, here's what I think. And I feel like I must say, just to tell you, I don't know if you've ever looked into this or not, but... There's a wide spectrum of views here. I mean, you read commentator after commentator and journal after journal and dissertation after dissertation on this verse in Galatians and there's no clarity out there as to what Paul means in this verse. But I'll tell you what I think because you pay me to interpret it as I see it. And I do the best I can. So here's what I think. I think Paul's saying that if in love you serve one another, you thereby fulfill the original intention of the law. You fulfill the original intention of the law. You're not rejecting the law. You're not replacing the law. These are common options. You're not rejecting the law. You're not replacing the law. You are expressing in your life, Christian, the very reality to which the law pointed. Which I've been arguing as best I can for months is to live by faith. It is to live by faith. And I know that's not stated explicitly in our verses here, but you remember verse 6, which Julia read. Just glance back up to the end of verse 6. Faith working through love. That's the only thing that counts, Paul says. That's the only thing that counts. Faith. This is living by faith. Faith working through love. Why? Because you have the hearing of faith, Galatians. I mean, that's been the core since chapter 3. You have the hearing of faith. You're not like the majority of Israel under the old covenant who remained hard-hearted, who received the law, but not the Spirit. Which is the promise of Abraham. And so they couldn't keep its original intention, right? We've developed that a few different times, working through Galatians. Back to chapter 3, verse 10 of Galatians. Israel's under the curse of the law. We're all in sin under the curse of the law. Why? Because we're still under sin. Before Jesus changes us. <laughs> under the curse of the law. We looked at Galatians 4, where Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. 
And Hagar corresponds to the present Jerusalem, Paul says. For she is in slavery with her children. Slavery, freedom, these are concepts Paul's been developing well before we come to our text this morning and we dare not ignore it. If in love you serve one another, I think Paul means you fulfill the original intention of the law. Precisely what the majority of Israel under the Old Covenant never did. Which means, if I'm even close to right, that it wasn't ever ultimately about being circumcised or not, Galatians. It wasn't ever ultimately about that. Was it a requirement stipulation in the Old Covenant? Yes. Is it a requirement stipulation in the New Covenant? No. Was it ever about being circumcised as the physical act of the flesh? No. Let me take you a few places here quickly. And you can then decide whether you think I'm onto this or not. First, listen to Romans chapter 13, verse 8. And following, because Galatians 5 isn't the only place that Paul talks like this. Here's Romans 13, verse 8, beginning there. Oh, no one anything, Paul says, except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. There's that same language. But then Paul goes on in this context in Romans. For, he says, yeah, that's helpful. What do you mean, Paul? For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. You hear that? And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul's just told us how this works. You take the commandments, any commandment. He says that explicitly. And behind it, you come up with one intention. Love. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, we're in pretty deep here, so we might as well dive all the way down, okay? I think that to understand the Bible, this has been implicit in a lot of what I've been saying in Galatians, but I've not come explicitly to say it until now. I think that to understand the Bible, we have to see that the law functions on two levels, if you will. This is Ganser, okay? This is, this is me trying, as your pastor, to put the Bible together by the power of the Spirit, if, if this is working. The law functions on two levels. I'll call them the symbolic level and the real level. <laughs> That's not biblical terminology, but the symbolic level and the real level. Do you remember that Paul said in Galatians 3 verse 19 that the law was added because of transgressions? The law was added because of transgressions. And I suggested kind of there, I didn't get into it very much, that what I think that means is what God was doing was instituting in the people of Israel 
the law as a symbolic holiness. A symbolic holiness for people he already knew were hard-hearted. He already knew could not walk in faithfulness with him with hard hearts. The law came as a symbolic holiness system, if you will. Why? Because he has to keep the people of Israel distinct from the nation symbolically as history unfolds, even if the people of Israel were absolutely no different, really. On the whole, it's always the remnant. But that on the whole, they're no different, really. So that the law functions on two levels. What does that mean? Well, take circumcision. That's the primary issue, Galatians. Circumcision. It separated Israel from the nations ethnically. But its real purpose was to point to the reality of a spirit-transformed, circumcised heart. We've looked at that. We've looked at Deuteronomy. We've looked at Jeremiah where there's explicit talk like that. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskins of your heart. That's the real level. Or ritual purity. Ritual purity. You know, laws like you can't touch a dead body or you can't, you know, all the ritual purity laws required to enter the temple. But the intent being to signal the need for a clean heart in order to be in God's presence. Just think Mark 7 and Jesus and the purity what defiles a person is what comes out of them, not what goes into them. Or the sacrificial system that pointed forward to the death of Christ as the one true sacrifice. Or the Passover that commemorated the exodus from Egypt, but as the precursor to the time when God's people would be delivered spiritually and not just circumstantially. Or the civil laws, like what to do with an ox that gores. Or how to deal with breaches of contract. Or how to provide for the poor from one's harvest. What are those about? They're intended to be models of what love would look like in economic affairs or theocratic laws, the kingship in Israel, pointing ahead to God being their king via his son, all of it, and even the Ten Commandments. Right? They're symbols. They're symbols. Do not murder. What's that about? Well, it means don't kill someone, obviously. But that's a symbol. It means more than that. But I say to you, Jesus says, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's Jesus. He's telling us what the law was really all about. It's the heart. You see, what's the point? The point is this. If you didn't kill somebody, did that mean you'd fulfilled the law? that says, do not murder? According to Jesus? No. All you did was keep it externally, symbolically, 
Not internally. Not really. And so it is with the whole law, brothers and sisters, which is why Paul can say, listen to this. When I found this this week, I was in the library, very quiet library. I found it in the library at uh, one of the U of T libraries, and I just about leapt up and shouted, like, yes, this is what it is. I was so excited. Why can Paul say this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19? Now, we're not going to look at the context of 1 Corinthians 7, though it is relevant, but just verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 7. Listen to it. Paul says, For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Does that sound familiar? Verse 5, Galatians 5. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but here's how he finishes it in 1 Corinthians 7. You ready? But keeping the commandments of God. Do you understand? Isn't circumcision a commandment, Paul? How can he say that? Think about that. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But keeping the commandments of God. But faith working through love. Because why? Because you can be circumcised and you can keep ritual purity and you can observe the holy days and you can bring your sacrifices to the temple, most of which are not the laws that you and I think about day to day. But, okay, go to the ones you might think about. You cannot physically murder someone. You cannot run off with someone who isn't your spouse. You can keep the Sabbath formally and not have kept the commandments of God. Well, you have to hear this. You have to hear Jesus. You have to let Jesus be as strong as Jesus gets because this is the new covenant and the gospel's far grander than we often give it credit for. For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus. Matthew 5, verse 20. How does our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? The ones who spent their life trying to keep the law. It's not complicated, actually. It's because they only kept the law symbolically. And according to Jesus and according to Paul, you and I, if Christ has set us free, keep the commandments really, spiritually, from the heart, because our hearts have been changed. Christians do not reject or replace the law. This is what I'm teaching. Christians do not reject or replace the law. You express it in your life, the very reality to which it pointed, which can be summarized as Jesus himself does. This way, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law 
and the prophets. There's a reason we say that every Sunday, and then we pray, Lord, have mercy, and write your law in our hearts, we pray. Why? Because we want to fulfill the law in our lives. Want to run in the way of your commandments. Paul says that's what matters, keeping the commandments of God. I want to run in the way of your commandments. Remember this from last week in Psalm 119. When you enlarge my heart, write it in my heart. You can't do it on your own, brothers and sisters. Which is why the gospel says Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. Remember that? I've not come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill it. He fulfills it perfectly sinlessly in his life in order to be the perfect sacrifice for sins in his death that he might what? Create a people by his spirit, the cross plus the spirit, who will be increasingly conformed to his image. You and I are meant to be more and more like Jesus, which means you and I are meant to fulfill the law. Not separated from the nations by outward observances, but living lives that are changed because our hearts have been transformed. Not sinlessly, perfectly. Jesus died for that. But empowered by the Spirit. It's the cross plus the Spirit, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's my best attempt at what Paul means. I've thought a long time about that. But the one other thing I want to say, lest it be misunderstood, is that that's not the easy way out. That's not the easy way out. It's the only way, but it's not the easy way. Do you realize that? I mean, we get this backwards all the time. We think keeping a long list of rules Right? Which it is, I guess. It takes a lot of effort, and if there's a lot of them, you're not going to keep them all perfect. You're going to get all wrapped up in keeping them or not. And but there were lots, lots of Pharisees and scribes and others who kept the law, symbolically. <laughs> but loving your neighbor as yourself? I like what one preacher says here. So, I don't do this very often, but I'm going to quote now at length from him. This is someone who actually did his doctoral dissertation on Leviticus 19, verse 18. So, I felt like he kind of knows what he's talking about. Love your neighbor as yourself is a command to take your natural, already existing love of self and make it the measuring rod of your love for others. There is not a harder command in the Bible than this one. It means want to feed the hungry as much as you want to feed yourself when you get hungry. It means Want 
to find your neighbor a job as much as you are glad you have a job. Want to help your fellow student get A's as much as you want to get A's. Want to help the person stalled on the freeway as much as you are glad you're not stalled on the freeway. Want to give the poor softball player, or Canadians might say hockey player, a chance to play as much as you want to play the whole game. Want to share Christ with your neighbor as much as you are glad you know Christ yourself. Use all the creativity and energy and perseverance to do good things for others that you use in doing good things for yourself. Care about what happens to others as much as you care about what happens to yourself. Can you imagine, this preacher says, what the church would be like if we were all like that? looking at the person to the right and to the left and feeling the same longing for their happiness that we feel for our own. Not only would the law be fulfilled, this place would be iridescent with joy. And the glory of God would be unmistakably present in our midst and people would be converted. Let's be like that in the power of the Holy Spirit. End of quote. I just say, yes, Lord. Please, Lord, make it so. Because the last thing I want at Christ the King is the alternative. The alternative is in our text. It's people creating an opportunity for the flesh. What might that look like? Well, it could be many things. It could look like harboring a grudge, hanging on to an unforgiving spirit. It could look like refusing to overlook minor offenses that are committed by others, just instead choosing to stoke our own pride or our own vanity because someone offended us. It, it could look like allowing ourselves to put a negative spin on the actions of others or to speak negatively about others. James says, do not speak evil against one another. It could look like engaging in conversation with people who just are negative and perhaps who engage in gossip or insults or critical speech or sarcasm or ridicule. Could look like neglecting to deal with personal grievances quickly and directly. Be angry and do not sin, Paul says in Ephesians 4. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. You hear that? You could let the devil into this place. And the evil one would be glad to use any and all of those things and other opportunities like them to destroy us, brothers and sisters, and I mean it. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Because if you do, Paul says, it can end in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. A church of people who do not serve each other in love will destroy itself. 
Listen then as we close to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, because it draws this together. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. And following. Beloved, John writes, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I mean, why is love the fulfillment of the law? Because then you're like God. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. How's that for serving the other? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.